The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales Episode 27, Light Work problem with a black swan, but how do we know enlisting your help won't give us bigger ones? Lucas asked, deciding to directly confront the fundamental flaw in his plan. He saw a need, more than the others perhaps, to contain her power and the persistence of Maria as the black swan in whatever character form was an issue that couldn't be ignored. That malevolent spirit messenger was a loose thread that could unravel the whole story world and, as Lucas had seen with the Maiden of the Copper Mountain, affect their lives as well. Though his real-world interactions with that character had been relatively benign, his experiences had taught him that the veil between the worlds, as Jack fancifully put it, was thinner in these times than anyone could have guessed. You don't. But you told my story. Now I'm here. If you want my help, it's yours. For a price. Like a mercenary? Isabel asked. Nightingale gave her a wink and a rakish grin. A mercenary is often part of a team and is more or less bound by an agreed payoff. If the job isn't done, there's hell to get paid. I work alone, and as you can see, I can't be bound. If I help you, I will get something I want. If you refuse my help, I'm a free agent who doesn't do boredom all that well. Jack didn't like the sound of that. So with you, it's the enemy of my enemy is my friend, is it? Until you get a better offer? Pretty much, Nightingale affirmed. He shrugged indifferently. The gesture traced the outline of folding raptor's wings. Not your average songbird, this one, Lucas thought. Maybe this was a mistake, after all. What do you want in exchange for dealing with the black swan, he asked. The three mm, heroes will do nicely. What, Lucas asked. You want Mikhailo Ivanovich, Dobrynya Nikitich, and Ilya of Murom? Especially the last one. He gave me my charming new look, Nightingale said, pointing to his eye patch. But yes, I'll take the set. You plan to kill three heroes for one bird? Seems a bit expensive, Jack observed wryly. As we know, she's not just any bird, and I don't want to kill those three. I want to play with them, not break them, as children are told. I'll keep sweet Mihailo sober, Dobrynya on his toes, and Ilya from making foolish oaths. It'll be fun. I'll be like, the robber trailed off, looking for a western literary parallel. I'll be like D'Artagnan to their three musketeers. Somehow I doubt it, Jack said. But as Voltaire said, doubt is an uncomfortable condition, but certainty is a ridiculous one. It's up to Lucas. He called you in. 
Go on, pilot. Tell me into their tales. I'll do the rest, Nightingale urged. Cross me and I'll grind you into poppy seed, Lucas warned. It's been done and now I get everywhere, Nightingale cried happily, fading to a sound of soft whistling. I hope you know what you're doing, Lucas, Isabel said. They're big boys, those three. I suppose they can take care of themselves and it will give them all a reason to get up in the morning, Jack offered. Countless conflicts have been waged on just such assumptions, Isabel rejoined. The thing about Russian folktales, Lucas replied, is that no matter how dark it gets, it's always darker somewhere else. That's almost Scottish, Isabel said. Lucas looked at the bright band about his wrist and felt renewed resolve. We've got this, he said. Accustomed to razor-sharp focus, lately Jack felt like he was losing his mind. He was all over the place. He tried to sort out the various things running through his distracted brain. Thirteen. It was the thirteenth of the month today, or it had been, or it would be, outside of their weekly story meetings which were somehow reserved in a special way in his consciousness, Jack's sense of time had become very elastic. Giants and swans, still, it was becoming a habit, but a rather fruitful and intriguing one. Rocket man, or more properly, outlandish stage outfits and funky retro fashion. Not that Jack would ever dress like any famous piano-playing pop stars of yore, even for fun, but his work-from-home uniform of grey sweats and black t-shirts was starting to feel conformist rather than comfortable, as though the inexorable march of time numbering his days had become an unremarkable schlep. He wished he could go out and buy himself a nice, non-essential, but absolutely necessary tailored shirt. Something crisp and geometrically uncomfortable until the skin breathed beneath it and the cotton remembered the warmth of the sun. He flipped through some 70s music videos. Hell, right now he'd settle for bell bottoms and platform soles. Glass ones. The shoes, he mentally corrected himself, not the jeans, and not in public. He texted his mother these disparate thoughts as a joke, asking her to find the story within. Red John, she wrote back. The woman had a flair for the obvious, and Jack loved her for it. As they signed on that evening, Jack's guests found themselves in a dimly lit, but clean and empty barn, the walls lit by torches. On closer inspection, the company realized the lights were not torches or candle sconces. They were blazing swords of light. Star Wars Christmas? Lucas asked tentatively, marveling at the different glowing runic inscriptions running down each blade. Tonight, my friends, you will experience what the Celtic mind does to the Andromeda myth, or one take on it. This is the story of Red John, the thirteenth firstborn son. I well speak for yourself, laddie. I at least can count, Isabel teased. 
Jack described himself as taking down one of the fiery blades and brandishing it like a swordsman challenging for a fight, the tip perilously close to Isabel's avatar. Hecklers from the peanut gallery may find themselves roasted, he said, winking. I yield, Isabel's avatar bowed in defeat, grinning back. Now then, Jack continued, once there was a king of Ireland who had thirteen sons. He must have done his kinging in his spare time, Mara quipped knowingly. A bright, whooshing arc swept over her head. One day, he was walking in his forests and he came upon a small lake where a swan was swimming with her cygnets. She had thirteen in all, though she kept pushing the thirteenth away with her beak and squawking at it angrily. Upon returning to the castle, the king called for his wisest counselor and asked why the swan would reject her thirteenth offspring. The thirteenth is left to destiny, the counselor replied. This lesson from nature is one the king should heed. When your sons come home tonight, welcome them all to your hearth, save the last to return. Him resign to fate. The king thought this pronouncement harsh indeed, but he greatly valued his minister's wisdom, so he resolved to disown whichever of his sons was last home. And, as it turned out, the last was the best. John was the eldest and the king's firstborn child. Where, among some of his other offspring, there were those who were homely, slow of wit, or tending towards pettiness or cruelty, John was tall, handsome, quick-minded, and kind. Unlike his brothers, John was the only one to inherit his mother's coppery hair. All his siblings were dark-haired like the king. John was last home that fateful night because he saw it as his regular duty to see his younger siblings safely through the gate, the beasts cared for, and the stable hands and shepherds consulted before he came in. The king was deeply grieved at this, but mindful of his counselor's pronouncement, the king met his son and told him he was to be consigned to destiny. What have I done other than look out for my brothers and our servants that you should treat me so? John asked, bewildered and hurt. The king repeated what his minister had advised, and so John was sent from court at first light with his father's blessing and sorrow, a new set of traveling clothes, some provisions, and a fine black horse that could cleave the wind. John had ridden far into the woods beyond the outskirts of his father's domain when he saw a fine procession stopping for a rest. It was the time that Aaron was a series of small kingdoms, and John beheld a royal neighbor. That king likewise saw John and was impressed by the young man. "'Why are you out here alone?' the other king asked. "'You seem nobly born. "'You should have at least a small party with you. "'In these times only paupers and brigands travel alone, "'and then only if they can't help it. "'Where are you bound?' "'I know not, sire. "'The life I knew is gone, and I am lost.' "'Are you good with beasts?' "'We get along well enough,' John affirmed. "'Come and be my cowherd, then.' I have large herds and not enough grazing land nearby. You will have to drive them far afield and bring them back quite regularly late. 
I'll pay you handsomely and give you a house. Serve me well, and you'll earn a herd of your own and land besides. John knew that with land would eventually come a title, even if the grant he received was far from the capital. This was more than his own father left him, so he agreed and took up his new position in a new realm. His new liege was happy that John agreed to his offer, but as they travelled home, John could see that there was something troubling the king. "'Your heart seems heavy and your mind distracted, my lord,' John ventured. "'May I know what is wrong?' My kingdom includes a long coast that traditionally brings us great riches through fishing and trade. We rarely suffer on the sea. But this grace comes at a price. There is a fierce sea serpent who rises up out of the sea every seven years, seeking to devour one of our maidens as sacrifice. This year the terrible fate falls to my only daughter, and we don't know when the dreaded creature will appear to exact his payment. Surely there are princes and warriors enough to confront this monster, if not from your own land, then from all the world around, John asked. There are many, but I fear none will have the courage when the time comes, the king replied sadly. John was silent for the duration of the journey. The next day, John was up early and started work. The king's herds were extensive, Driving them to good pastures was a formidable task. As it happened, there were three giants whose domains were in the king's country. Each had fine pastures surrounding a castle on a hill. They were in sight of each other, and to communicate, each giant would just yell over to his neighbor. As giants tend to be somewhat self-centered, they mostly yelled insults and curses. They were poor neighbors and worse enemies. John let the cattle graze on the first giant's pastures. Soon that giant came out to confront him. I don't know whether you're a pinch of snuff or a mouthful, the giant scoffed. Do you want to die on the stones of the hillside or here in the valley by a sword? John opted for the hillside and ran to higher ground before the giant could catch him. He used his position and the terrain to his advantage, and he used his opponent's bulk against him so that the giant was buried first to his knees in the loose stones, then to his waist, and finally to his shoulders. Let me out of this, and I'll take you up to my castle where you can have your pick of treasure, including a horse so swift the wind dies for longing, and a sword of light, the giant promised. I have a better idea, John replied, killing the giant and going up to the castle alone. His housekeeper was delighted. Oh, you've killed him, she cried. He was cruel to us servants, and now we're free. Come in and refresh yourself and take your pick from the giant's treasury. She handed him a set of keys. As far as we're concerned, you are lord here now. Keep the treasures safe for me until I return, but a meal and a bed would be welcome, said John. The next morning, John drove the cows back to the king's stables. The cows gave as much milk then as in the entire week before. The king was thrilled with this outcome. But when John asked whether the sea serpent had come to claim his daughter, the king replied, Not today, but it will come without warning. I fear my child is lost. The next morning, 
John drove the cattle into the pastures belonging to the second giant. When he was given the same choice of battlegrounds, John again drove his opponent into the jagged gray rocks up to his shoulders. Wait, set me free and claim my sword of light, the giant pleaded. Where is this sword? John asked. Hanging over my bed. Welcomed by the second giant's servants, John retrieved the sword and returned to the giant, who was still trapped and miserable. I've never tried one of these, John said. How will I test such a blade? Against a stick, the giant said morosely. Your head looks wooden enough, John answered, beheading the giant and returning to the castle. He left the keys with the housekeeper, but ate supper and stayed the night as before. He drove the cattle home next morning, and they gave as much milk as in a fortnight. Again, the king was pleased with this, but anxious about his daughter. The sea serpent did not come today, but may come tomorrow, he said. The next day, John drove the cattle to the pastures surrounding the third giant's keep, dispatched his foe, and accepted grateful thanks and hospitality from the servants. The next morning, he drove the cattle home, where they gave more milk than they normally did in a month. The king instructed his servants to distribute half of it to the people in the town. Still, the sea serpent had not come. The next morning, John drove the cows again to the first giant's castle and pastures and put on a fine suit of black armor. He took the giant's black steed and his sword of light. He rode to the shore where he saw hundreds of princes and noblemen's sons arrayed for battle. What's going on? John asked. Dressed as he was, the king did not recognize him, but said to the unknown knight, A monster comes to devour my daughter today. Where have you come from that you know nothing of this? John rode to the rock above the sea where the princess had been made to wait. Is there none among these princes to be your champion? he asked. None has come forward save you, she replied. John removed his helmet and said, I have ridden far to get here. Allow me to sleep a while and waken me when the serpent comes. As he slept, the princess took a strand of his fine red hair and hid it in her sleeve. When she saw the serpent coming, she screamed and John woke up. He sprang to his feet, taking up the sword of light. This woman is mine, not yours, and I shall defend her. He sliced off the serpent's scaly, barnacle-encrusted head, but it rolled right back into place in the twinkling of an eye. I will come again tomorrow and swallow the whole world before me, the serpent roared and disappeared beneath the crashing waves. Replacing his helmet to cover his blazing hair, John rode away back to the first giant's castle. He put back the sword, armor, and horse, and drove the cattle home. He asked the king whether the serpent had come that day. Indeed it did, but a foreign knight drove it off, though it was not killed. We expect it will return tomorrow, but my daughter yet lives this night. The next morning... John drove the herds to the pastures around the second giant's castle, and the servants helped him put on a suit of blood-red armor and mount a steed the color of storm clouds. He took up the second sword of light and went to the shoreline, 
greeting the king as an unknown warrior and then presenting himself to the princess. Again he begged leave to rest until the battle should commence. As he slept, she took a strand of his hair and compared it to the first. You are the same champion who defended me as before, she thought to herself. When the serpent appeared, it had its mouth open, as if to devour the sea and shore along with the princess. John sprang up and cut its head in two right down the middle, but the two halves knitted themselves whole again in a breath. Well thought today, mortal, but I shall return, the monster cried, disappearing into the depths. John returned to the second giant's castle, replaced the wondrous treasures he had used against the serpent, and dressed again in his own clothes. He drove the herds home, where the king excitedly detailed the exploits of the Red Knight. The next day, John drove the cattle to the third giant's pastures, and the servants arrayed him in blue and silver armor that shone with every color in the sky, and blue boots that were made of unbreakable glass, which allowed him swiftness and sure footing on any surface. The third giant's horse was the color of snow on a mountain peak. Before he set out for the confrontation on the shore, the third giant's housekeeper handed John what looked like a small wizened brown apple. When the serpent roars, run up close enough to throw this down its gullet, she instructed. John greeted the king and made his way to the princess, again asking to sleep and conserve his strength for the fight. She plucked a third fine red hair and compared it with the others. You are my true champion, she said, just as the serpent reared up, having come in like the tide this time, almost unnoticed. John sprang up and, remembering the housekeeper's admonishment, ran as close as he dared while shouting defiance at the beast. The sea serpent threw back its horrible head and roared. John threw the brown apple down its cavernous throat and... It melted away like something. John mounted his horse and turned to ride away, but the princess caught at his stirrup and held on to his boot for a few seconds, pleading with him not to leave. As she moved back, she saw that she was still holding on to the blue boot, even though her mysterious champion was gone. She told her father that she would only marry the one who killed the serpent, he whose foot fit the boot. Accordingly, all of the hundreds of princelings and noble youths who had come with hopes of finding the courage to defeat the sea serpent lined up to try the boot, swearing that they had vanquished the leviathan. For his part, John went back to looking after the king's cows. When all the fine young suitors had tried and failed to fit the boot, the counselors told the king the only one left was the cowherd. What use is his trying? But send twenty men to bring him in from the fields if he doesn't come willingly, the king commanded. The twenty men-at-arms sent for Jack had rope enough to tie him up and drag him back if he declined to try on the boot, but he trussed them up instead, untying them in the presence of the king to the company's profound collective embarrassment. One chamberlain came forward and removed John's shoe. 
It was only his age and natural courtesy that prevented John from kicking the old official. He did not like being fussed over or compelled to partake in foolish contests. My lord, this has little enough to do with me, and I don't like being disturbed at work, he complained. My daughter was nearly devoured of a sea serpent. Now she was almost consumed of a broken heart. All you have to do is try on a boot and... The boot didn't wait. It fairly jumped onto John's foot while he produced its pair. The princess threw her arms around John and kissed him, and the king cheered to see his child's happiness restored. That left a multitude of irate princes and lordlings shouting that the baseborn couldn't be heroes. Cowards shouldn't be kings or father them either, John said, taking out the third giant sword of light and making decidedly light work of his detractors. All the listeners groaned at the pun as Jack paused for effect. Red John revealed his true identity to the king and married the princess with all proper ceremony, and all the royalty of the known kingdoms attended, from Greece and Spain and Lachlan, as the bards say. All the great and good were there, including Diarmid, son of the king of light. John never returned to his father's kingdom, but ruled with his queen after his father-in-law died building a coastal defense between the giant's castles, using their store of treasure to equip and defend it. Each castle served as a beacon, lit against enemies coming by sea by a blazing sword of light. Cinderella with lightsabers, Lucas cried. Excellent taste in footwear, Jack, Isabel approved. Red John would have needed those defenses, what with all the wars started to avenge the deaths of so many useless princes, Mara observed, an angry streak in that one to match his hair. I like him. The Decameron shuffled, Queen of Spades. Finally, Mara said, See you next week. Watch this space. She signed off. Before you go, Jack directed the others, Add one of the swords on the walls to your inventories. I have a feeling things are going to get a little dark. The Decameron, A Year of Otherworldly Tales, is an original work by Shauna Kozar, all rights reserved. Shauna gratefully acknowledges that she lives and works in a beautiful, storied place, the ancestral lands of the Snamuk First Nation, and that she crafts her tales thanks to the support of the Canada Council.